This week's episode of How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. If you've been listening to the show, you'll know that I bought some of Pillar Performance's triple magnesium powder and literally my sleep got noticeably better. And so I just reached out to them and said, hey, would you guys be interested to support a few episodes of the show and, and maybe give me a discount code that, that all of my listeners can, um, can use to try it for themselves? Um, and yeah, luckily for me, they did that. And I, so I really can't recommend enough that if you're training for something and, and you want to recover better, then we know how important sleep is for that. But, but even if you just want to feel better day to day and know the importance of sleep and maybe struggle with it a bit, that you head over to Pillar Performance's website and, and literally grab some for yourself. Um, they also have lots of other micronutrient products that, you know, things like support your immune system function, um, other ways of, of helping your recovery, um, increasing your energy levels, things like that. Um, for example, I've just I've just got grabbed some um, immune support there, and and I'm really enjoying it because I was getting sick quite a bit. Um, so yeah, if you do want to try any of Pillar Performance's products for yourself, then head over to their shop. I'll um, put all the details of of there, like a link to their website, in the description of this episode, and I'll chuck the discount code they gave me. Um, that discount code is HTT10, uh, and it gets you ten dollars off your first order. So yep, if you want to try some. Uh, Click the, click the link in the description and, and head over there and, and grab it. Welcome back to How They Train. I'm Jack Kelly and today I'm joined by the legendary coach of Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld, Olaf Alexander Boo. I know I've said this before and I've genuinely meant it when I've said it, but this is the single most excited I've ever been to talk to someone on this podcast. Olav and his Norwegian team have completely revolutionized the sport of triathlon to the point where almost every professional triathlete is trying to re- replicate their training, um, particularly their, their scientific or, or sp- specific approach to the sport and their huge focus on creating a 24-7 professional winning culture. Olav, you're the coach of the last two men's Ironman World Champions, the last three men's Ironman 70.3 World Champions, the current men's Olympic gold medalist, and the Ironman World Best Time record holder, however they word that. It's absolutely mind-blowing when you say it aloud how many how many current titles you hold in the world of triathlon. And I just have so many questions to ask you that it's almost overwhelming um, how much I want to ask you. So maybe I'll just start off with like a big, broad hard straight to the point question like Olav what is your secret <laughs> uh, thank you for the for the very kind introduction actually there isn't so much secrets to be honest it comes down to for me I like to approach it by physics I think I said this before uh, and that is because it's a demand driven sport uh, and by that, I mean that you, as long as you focus on what is the demand of what you're trying to achieve and then trying to break that down into smaller pieces and bridging it together again, leading into a race, you are pretty well set up, I would think. And then, and then, and then of course, trying to do it as diligently as possible. I've got so many questions to ask you because I'm... Um... Like you know, we've already talked a bit, Olav, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I consume a lot of the media that you do, even though you don't really do that much. Um, you sort of do tend to keep to yourself a little bit. I've always been a little frustrated at the questions people have asked you because I feel like maybe there's like a bit of mystique around you and you're a very smart, 
scientific man that that people don't ask you the direct questions. Like it's always chat about technology or um, maybe more like optimization type things. But I, I haven't heard you talk too much about just the nuts and bolts of like what the day-to-day training looks like of, of the guys you're coaching and like just like the simple things about about endurance training. So I'm going to try and ask some of those questions. Um, for example, with say Christian and Gustav leading into a big race, like let's talk about the Ironman World Championships this year. How far out from that are you guys training specifically for that? Um, and is it all planned out? Like is it like one of these things where you're like, okay, we have this 16-week training program. I'm going to ride it all out. Let's try and follow this as closely as possible. Uh, so, uh, of course, I th- on the one side, of course, we use a lot of technology. And, and But that is, for me, mostly to be able to always be one step ahead or preferably even a few steps ahead of what we are doing in training. So learning, learning, and of course, uh, trying always to advance it. But in the daily training, uh, of course, it's about doing things as accurately as possible. Um, no, and I don't, I absolutely don't write a 16 week plan. And then basically we, 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 and then we just try to stick to that. Um, of course, we have an idea of where I, I very often like to work to, of course, think or plan backwards. So I would start with race day or, okay, what do we want to achieve at race day? What do we think is the demand of race day? And then we start to, of course, have like the course plan that are saying, okay, yes, fine. Then this is what we need to focus on. This is the status of the athletes now, because of course we do a lot of measurements in the field every day and these kind of things. So I have a pretty good understanding of where the athletes are. And then I also have an idea of how far they are from where I, I think that we or where we where we think that we need to be on race day in order to win. But then uh, that also gives me an idea of how big the gap is. And that dictates a little bit when we would start the specialization. Actually, the specialization that led into Kona was the shortest ever preparation we had done into, into an Ironman. And I think still it's even though we won, we, we didn't necessarily go there to win. We got we went there, of course, to set the course record. And of course, if you're gonna set the course record, you have to win. Uh, but um, more, I think that we, we still could have shaved off another uh, five to 10 minutes of it. I think that going some sub 7.30 on a normal day, not of course, if you have like a really bad day with wind and all these kind of things, it's going to be tougher. But but on a normal day, I think it's I think it's doable to actually get below 7.30 in, in, in Kona. But that also would require us not to race, for example, the sprint distance in Bergen, because the sprint distance in Bergen, but also the race they did in i think the weekend before was it in slovakia a collins cup or a pto race they um that that, that was a little bit of a noise in the programs so ideally i would start the start the specialization uh, with the starters they had this summer uh, i would normally have started that probably a, a two, three weeks earlier to be on the comfortable side and basically see that we, we really got in all the sessions to, 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 to build up that required speed to get closer to 7.30 in, 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 um, in Kona. So when we're talking specifics about what you're doing with, with Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden in the lead up to Kona, where they ultimately, you know, Gustav did break the course record, as did Christian, but obviously because Gustav was a bit faster, he didn't get it. Gustav wins the race, Christian comes third. 
And all day it did look like they had a plan. Like you could see that the boys were very much, they knew what they were capable of. They knew their numbers. They were racing really smartly and, and scientifically. You could tell that. And obviously to get to that point where you know your body so well and, and, and you know, the, the race is almost like, I don't want to say a foregone conclusion, but they know that if they do these numbers and they just stick to this, that that's going to get them this time and, and they're pretty much going to be able to win. So we know that you guys have this really scientific, specific approach to it. And, and everyone talks about that. And then everyone talks about the way that you guys implement technology. And the big one is everyone has been talking about and copying your, um, your incessant use of lactate uh, monitoring during training to make sure that you are hitting those correct zones. Now, all of that aside, because I think a lot of that goes over people's heads a little bit. Can you talk to me about the more day-to-day, just like, you know, old school training that you guys do? So, um, is it true, for example, that you're really high volume, that everything you do is sort of very specific to Ironman pace or, or easier? Can you sort of walk me through like what a big key week might have looked like for Gustav and Christian into the, the lead up to, the, to Kona? Uh, so then I, I almost have to go back into my plan because a plan is a plan. <laughs> I love it. Open it up. Yeah. Well, uh, typically, typically the week leading into, into Kona, uh, or the weeks, or let's say the period leading into Kona would of course be one, uh, training specifically. So meaning specifically because specificity sometimes is also misunderstood. People think that specificity is only about, for example, hitting a number. But you also have for to get that specificity. You also have to you ha- also have to hit those uh, durations too. Because you can imagine if you go out doing, uh, let's say you are using an RPE scale just just to simplify it. So using perceived uh, effort, and then you go out and you go out with what you have been taught is gonna feel like a seven to eight. So let's say, let's say that your 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 LT two or maximum like this steady state or metabolic steady state is is um, that that's that's gonna feel like a seven to eight. That's what you've been taught. So now you go out running, but seven to eight. That's that is how it's gonna in the first minutes it's gonna feel like still like a two to three or one or two or three because it's it's so short duration that you're not even close to hit um, fatigue uh, at all. But as you start to progress out in that session, then you're starting to build closer to that seven to eight. But even a threshold session or let's say something where you are hitting threshold speed, not 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 now not not seeing, but from external perspective, power speed. It's still going to feel like a 10 in the end if you go all the way to exhaustion. So this is why, this is why of course, uh, specificity uh, and, and uh, it's not only about intensity, but it also is about duration. And it's also, I see there's, of course, a lot of debate around specificity and all these kind of things and so on. But we have to remember that we always become good at what we train at or what we train at. That is basically what we are supposed to do in training. You can't expect to do something completely different to exaggerate and then basically do well on something completely different in, in racing. You have to practice what you're gonna what, what you're gonna race. And then when it comes to volume, yes, absolutely, we do a lot of volume. So there's there's a high volume, but it, but it's not about polarized or pyramidal or these kind of things. It's more about making sure that we, we get in the key sessions. The key sessions are basically what dictates much of 
what's going on around. So that means that the high, if, if, if you are really struggling with nailing the, uh, let's say the intensity and duration on the key sessions, then I would immediately start adjusting uh, on the sessions that are a little bit high intensity, low intensity, and maybe first of all, bring down the volume or mostly bring down the volume on those sessions to make sure that we hit the, the numbers that we do in the key session. Uh, that, that would be my first step. But basically, it is a volume-driven program. Uh, and the reason for why it's also a volume-driven program, and that is I've done a lot of research on what is called maximum sustainable energy expenditure. To simplify it, there is no there is no speed without power, and there's no power without calories. And also, one thing that we see there is a very strong correlation between if the, if that if you plot time on a marathon or Ironman or whatever event that you're doing, and you plot the time you're gonna spend over those kilometers or how fast you're racing on the x-axis, and then you plot on the y-axis, you plot volume or maybe more accurately kilojoules or kilocalories how much kilocalories you are you, you are doing per year or per, per per month or per week then you'll see that basically there's one of the strongest correlations that we can find amongst in any sports more or less and of course you need to adjust it if it's like sprint distance you need to, you need to adjust it of course accordingly because it's about the key sessions but you'll see that the fastest sprinters in the world are probably, or, 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 or they, are, they are doing a much bigger volume in total during a week of training than an uh, amateur is doing. If you go to a mar marathoner like Kipchoge, you'll see that they do a the, the best marathoners in the world. They do a lot more volume or work, to be more specific. Than, uh, than, than, than their slower pairs. Uh, if you look at, and that, that, there is no difference in triathlon, that, that, that if you look at age groupers, you will very often see that the amount of work, volume is, is a little bit inaccurate because it doesn't say anything about intensity. And if you can have two people doing the same amount of, uh, same amount of uh, volume per week, but one would have to do it at a very, very low intensity to be able to sustain it, while another one can have also quite a lot of variation in intensity because he is able to sustain it. And then, so basically it comes down, work is the, the maybe the most accurate metric to talk about that, but the more work, you do, there is a very strong correlation between that and performance. And of course, that is something that I spent quite a lot of on researching. But of course, you can't mindlessly implement just a lot of work or volume, then you're going to make slower athletes. So again, the more volume or the more uh, more work you do, the more, the more it starts to require also in the planning, the planning and monitoring and following up of the athletes, because you have less margin of error to, to, to do. If you have a little bit less volume, then you have maybe a little bit more um, more uh, margin of error. But again, in the end, we are talking about finding those margins. And that's about then doing both the work, but also being maliciously accurate on uh, managing the load uh, um, throughout the week, throughout the months, uh, years, and so on. All of that makes complete sense, and you can you can see that that you guys um, embody this in your training. I mean, that's where I'm assuming that's where the lactate measuring comes into things because you're just trying to, um, you know, you're trying to be very specific to to the demands needed for the race, but you're also trying to monitor the workload because you don't want to, you know, you you want to be doing the right amount. You don't want to be going and doing way too much because, like, 
I assume you don't get much benefit if you go, for example, you're, you're doing a 35-hour training week leading into the Ironman World Championships. If you exceed the, um, the intensity required for, say, three or four sessions, it probably has a big like, run-on effect where it, it decreases the quality of other training for unnecessary reasons. Like you, you're saying that you don't really do polarized training with Christian and, and Gustav in the lead-up to, to Kona. So there's really no need for them to run heaps faster in, in training than what they have to based on the, the zones you're setting. Um, so can you sort of walk me through what that actually looks like. Do you know what I mean? Like what, what would, what would a big key week look like for, for one of those guys in the lead up to, to Kona? So, um, again, uh, of course and there are, there are some parts of this that we, of course, again, we're doing a lot of research in field on the athletes and so on. Uh, but also being able to do it all the way from calories to, to velocity, it gives, of course, a quite interesting insight in what's also going on in the body or how the body adapts to the demand. But again, because we have to remember that it's, I see very often too that physiologists or some coaches that obsess too much over physiology itself. They 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 drive the development from um, from a physiological aspect rather than from a, a demand aspect. And what we have to remember here that this is we are we are trying to hit a target or or or, or adapt to a demand, not doing some fancy training because we see that that can give you a long session with high VO to max. We are not in the end your race time it's going to be what it is independently of your vo to max very simplified but a big week uh, what what i mean where i want to go with that is that what's going to happen when you start preparing for kona is that we know that for example your five minute power is not going to be very important at all because you're not going to do five minute efforts like very high intensity or something like this you're not going to do one minute efforts or this kind of it's too far away really from what you want to prepare for in the race so what we want to prepare for in the race is obviously power numbers that are around target but we also want to understand of course yes there will be maybe a few surges and these kind of things but the surges they are still we are talking about small changes in the power. Yes, they go maybe up 10, 20, 40 watts for a short period just to break or try to make a gap or something like this. But you can't really like put in a huge surge in an Ironman because the day is so long that if you're going to do any surge, then it is probably going to be closer to the finish, but still a big surge. Then you have to question afterwards whether you left a little bit too much in the tank and you could have been in a better position towards the end of the race uh, if you are capable of doing that. Again, I don't think most people would do that. But so a big week, it's about uh, a big week far away uh, from, from, from Ironman, let's say uh, five, six weeks away, could typically be some sessions where we're working a little bit on overspeed. Uh, so it could be sessions closer to your, your metabolic steady state, and it could be uh, yeah, in, in, in all, in actually in all sports, both in cycling, uh, or in all disciplines, cycling, running and swimming, uh, uh, but some combi- combined days, some isolated days, uh, but yeah, one day could be, uh, 
hard bike and a hard swim, for example, then an and, and, and easy run, then I would break it up typically keeping one day maybe a little bit easier. But this is something also that I play around because it completely depends a little bit on the athlete and what what is the what is the limiter. But uh, then it could be like a little bit longer, easy, but easy day where we keep it close to what we would do in a race in terms of duration, but we keep the intensity lower. And that is because the long days will put a huge uh, demand on your body if you bring it up to race pace obviously uh, so we keep it lighter so that the recovery is short and then the day after there again we mix it up with more uh, higher intensity again can be some progressive work around or a little bit above in for example now cycling and running or swimming and running and then again uh, with one easy session and then the day after i would keep it a little bit easier maybe very short now because again we have to i, I work actually when i start planning i plan very often for my calorie budget i start with what i do know from the studies that done on christian and gustav in terms of ma maximum sustainable energy expenditure so when I know this, I know how much calories they are, they are burning. I know their biochemical efficiency from all the field testing and testing in laboratory and so on. Then I know approximately if they go this speed, if they go this power, if it's this temperature or these kind of things, then I know approximately this is the amount of calories they are burning per hour at a certain intensity, uh, for example. So I would, I, this is where I would plan. And then you can always put in a caloric depth to, to put it that way but at some point you have to pay that back you can't go too long building up building more depth building more depth building more depth because that's the same way that you're training more than you also can recover you need calories to recover to to, to make it simple so i could i can maybe build two three days of of depth and then i would ease it up so that they are able to eat themselves up again bring maybe even a little bit of a caloric uh, excess even so they come a little bit above and then we can go into a couple of days where i where we do more uh ironman specific work where instead of like putting in a full ironman i could break it up into two days so for example one day i would do ironman specific very ironman specific swimming uh so that it would be like four four k's with longer longer uh, intervals again because swimming short intervals we have to remember that swimming is a very technical sport you're engaging small muscles and big muscles but if you only do small, like break a 4, 4K up into small, short intervals all the time, the problem with that is that you, you don't get in that, let's say, that adaptation to fatigue or where you're you are signaling to your muscles that no, you're not going to do on the short intervals. You're actually going to do a 4K or 3.8K because that's what you're going to do in a race. So again, you don't need to do like the whole 3.8K. I think that's good to do some once in a while too, but... But it, it maybe it could be like four times 1K, for example. Uh, at, at Just then, if I break it up into walls, I would probably be either keep it at or just slightly above race pace. Then they would have a short break where they would eat a little bit and this kind of thing, again, to manage the load and recovery times. And then I would bring them on the bike. And now they would do uh, at least four hours of, of riding at uh, race pace. But of course, there will be, depending on how long now, the time, the transition time would be, I would, um, 
uh, between the swim and the bike. They would either do a warm up if, if, if it's if it's let's say half a uh, more than an hour between. If it's less than half an hour, they can just go to the bike and just go progressively into the workouts. And then we would again do longer intervals. It could be only broken up by uh, that I would do some testing on them in the field just to see how the metabolism is adapting to the demand because we are still far away from the race. And uh, after those four hours, depending a little bit, I could maybe put in a short run. But again, remember now that we are going to have one more day now with, with, with uh, Ironman-specific work. So if that run, if the athletes feel that that run might impair the quality of the session the day after, we just skip that run session outright. It's no need to put it in. If they feel, well, I feel really, really well and I want to maybe put in a short run to because I think that will also help me. I want to focus on this specific task, just a short run, maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes, uh, and then focus on what you're going to bring into the run tomorrow. That's fine. But it needs to be so short that and with the purpose of that it prepares you for tomorrow's session, not put any fatigue of you into tomorrow's session because this is not a key session. Uh, then, uh, for example, and then the day after, then since we already did the swimming and I'm breaking up into two days, we're going to skip swimming probably today because again now we are building quite big uh, caloric deficit um, because it requires a lot of eating to put in when when you already have been swimming more than four k, you maybe did five and a half K because of warm up and these kind of things. And then you did biking. And that was also longer than what you do in race day, because again, you split them apart and you break them up into small intervals and maybe there's a warm up and a cool down there as well. So that again is also going to be bigger. Those two combined are already putting in a bigger caloric surge into your body than, than, than they would normally do on a race day. Um, and then, so you're coming into the day after with both fatigue, of course, from this uh, swim and this bike uh, already, not a big one in the same way that you do in race day. But now we would still now do a bike uh, to basically set the stage. So this now would, would probably be a little, little bit uh, fairly, let's say a medium, medium long ride, uh, but a little bit lower intensity um, can put in some alternative works depending on, again, what if there is something specific that I want them to work on. And then we put in a very race specific run. So it's going to be like a 30, 35, 40, uh, 40K run uh, again, because we need to practice what we're going to race. And then after they're done that with that, then basically we call it, uh, we call it a week and, 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 and uh, it's, we bring it into a new week. So again, of course, the plan would be to build this gradually up to basically where um where typically what one thing that I think many people don't consider is that if you look at the sprint, what's quite interesting too, if you look at the sprint distance triathlon, you are completing the distance in swimming, biking, and running mostly every day in your training. Even on the easy days, you would probably even cover the distance you're going to do in a race. The swim, of course, in a sprint distance is 750 meters. Uh, your bike is is uh, 20 kilometer and your run is 5k. And I would think that even age grouper, most age groupers that are on a fairly high level do cover all those distances in swimming, biking and running every day, more or less, of course, with the exception of recovery days. In Olympic distance, 
we do almost the same again. Most athletes will swim 1500 meters a day. They will, they will be biking at least one hour a day, but it also cover if they go flat, they cover 40, 40 kilometers on the bike even. Uh, and uh, they will even run 10 K uh, most days with warm up and cool down and this kind of thing. Then we go to the half Ironman. Half Ironman, this is where you would maybe start now to, to differentiate a little bit more. You will see that the age group is maybe doesn't cover all these distances, but most of the professional athletes that are training 25 hours, uh, 20, 25, 30 hours, they would cover uh, at least 1,900 meters swimming, just even in their main set. So with cool on and uh, warm up and cool on even longer in their in their um, in their biking, uh, they're gonna do more than two hours of riding. And so depending on whether it's flat or vertical, they're even gonna do closer to 90 kilometers on the bike. But let's say they do two and a half hour, three uh, something on the bike. And then you got the running. Running is maybe what you want. Then now you come to the point where even the professionals will not have. Uh, everyday session that are 20 kilometers uh, in the running but it will be close with warm-up and cool down you're still probably hitting 12 15 16 18k uh, and maybe during the week you might even go longer than 21 22k you maybe even go 24 26k in your running with uh with warm-up and cool down go now to ironman distance 4k in the swim mostly you're going to do with warm up and cool down but you're starting to get to the limit to 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 it more or less biking you're not going to do four hours of riding many times uh that even in a month you're going to do that a couple of times but not many and running you're not going to run two hours uh or two and a half hour even uh, verse uh during a month that's going to happen maybe only when you specialize so it's quite interesting then also to look at but biking you're closer to because you might do session ride bike rides that are four hours five hours so you're getting into time you're not getting into kilojoules right enough because you're not staying at the intensity but you get in the time and you get in the, the time and your position this kind of thing you get closer to that when you maybe do more specific and these kind of things too but it's interesting to see that if we take if you look at the, this, the, the sprint distance and we co compare it with Olympic distance, Olympic distance with half Ironman distance, you can basically multiply the time on the sprint distance with the distance in the Olympic or in Ironman, and you can and, and you get it and it increases by a factor of two. So if you if if if, if your if your competition takes uh, one hour in sprint, it's going to take all it going to take closer to two hours in an Olympic. If you go from Olympic to, to a full Ironman, it's going to be close to four hours uh, to a half Ironman. But when we go to from a half Ironman to a full distance, this is where the interesting part is happening. The swimming is basically swim times on the sprint, Olympic, half Ironman are almost the same time per distance. If you go on a bike, it's almost the same per distance so the so the time in the sprint to olympic from olympic to 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 the half ironman if, if you if you if you normalize it for the distance it's going to be approximately pretty much the same if you go to the run now from sprint to olympic from olympic to half ironman again you can normalize it for the distance and it's it, it, your, the pace is is not that much off but go from half ironman to full ironman and suddenly there is something extremely interesting happening to the running and then you can ask the question, why is this happening? And that's why, of, of obviously, maybe because that's the distance and the distance and the training we do the least in triathlon, especially on the longer courses. 
So that's why, again, most probably volume or the work that you do on that distance is the biggest explanation for why you're not, we are, we are so far off, far off on making a linear relationship between the distances isolated when it, when it comes, to, comes to the run comparing sprint, Olympic, half and Ironman distance. So again, closer into the race, what's going to happen is that we get more and more specific, but now because you also want to taper, the, the, the training that goes around this specificity comes down as well. So that means it's going to be less high intensity work, it's going to be less low intensity work and more and more targeted towards what we want to do in, in the racing so that's the that's the the medium long answer simplified so read this because obviously um i think the interesting thing about christian and gustav's race at the ironman world championships is we probably do look at them as the two best runners in the field but the reality of the day was that they were in a group of five people at 90k into the bike where if the race was going to be won, it was going to be won by them. And so they were in the lead group out of the swim. By the time the bike was halfway through, they were in this group where it's like, well, this is the podium. No one from behind that's coming into this. And then from the end of the ride, it was the same thing. So they're not just runners. Like clearly everything they're doing is putting them to be one of the best in the world across all three disciplines. But because of how much better they, they are than the rest of the, the field across the marathon distance, and to be honest, even the half marathon distance in half Ironman, um, I think we saw a bit of a tired Christian Blumenfeld at St. George, but on, on their day, Christian and, and Gustav, they get off they get off the bike in T2 and it's it's how much are they going to uh, put, like how much time are they going to put into everyone on the run, not, not if they are going to. And so is this because they're special or is it because you guys have realized that if we want to run fast over these long distances, half marathons, full marathons off the bike, that we need to be doing a lot more running and a lot more of that running needs to be more specific to the pace. So for example, at the Ironman World Championships, did you guys realize, hey, everyone's sort of underdoing their running. You know, they're not doing their long runs long enough. They're not doing them specific enough. And is the secret that you guys like gradually built into your program, 30, 35, 40K runs at or around Ironman pace. Um, and, and that's just something that no one else is doing. I think just one thing that I want to em emphasize first, I think one thing that's interesting also to see at is that basically if we look at the sprint distance time, Olympic distance time and half arm in time and compare it to the best in the world. The gap is there is a gap, but it's not a huge gap. If we look at marathon time in an Ironman compared to the best in the world, there's a huge gap. That's where it's a huge gap. But in the shorter distances, it's not. And of course, this boils down also a little bit that on the one side, one thing that we always have to be cautious about and that is overtraining and the closer you get to let's say your maximum sustainable energy expenditure basically you're putting in more and more volume the danger is that you're coming into a state where not you are not where you're not able to recover from it and unfortunately if this would be a simple science you would you would obviously back off uh, very soon but that's of course what people do too late so that's of course why people it's, it's safer sometimes to keep it a little bit on the safe side and then pushing the margins when it comes to maximum sustained energy expenditure or volume or work that you do per week. But again, of course, that's, that's where we, we try to be more diligent and accurate. 
when it comes to Christian and Gustav and, and why they are so fast, I don't think it's unique to them. That's why I think that next year when we go back to Kona, I already said this after Cosima last year. I said that, of course, when somebody comes in and really sets a new bar, new bar like, like uh, Gustav did in Florida, uh, Christian did in Cosimel, people first maybe open they of course it becomes a little bit of a shocker but they more like scratch their their head like okay is this is this a one time it was something uh crazy happening that day or something like this but then you see it happens again and again and when it happens again and again this is of course like you say in in, in introduction where people really start to to try to copy and and understand what is really going on and eventually the people that focus on this will also try to to maybe break it down and make it even smarter because this is what they spend all the time on. Uh, that's why I also think that this is not unique for Christian and Gustav. Uh, obviously, they are extremely uh, dedicated and, and uh, athletes, uh, uh, and, and, and they have the mentality uh, to be the best in the world. But it's not like there is not a lot of other people that also have this mentality. But that's, that's what I do think is that and that's why I also said after Cosmel that it's going to be a matter of time where we basically see records start to fall everywhere. So instead, I did suspect that it would be closer in uh, in uh, Saint George, and in Kona, I actually didn't know. I knew, of course, I had a good feeling, knew we were well prepared, and I knew that with the time we had available between um, the sprint distance in Bergen and leading into Kona, we everything went on, on rails or, or on tracks, uh, more or less. So there was not a lot of hiccups. But, of course, I would like to have more time, so I knew we could have gone faster. But what you'll see in Kona next year, of course, Christian now and Christian Gustav, they go back to uh, to uh, Olympic racing, and that's been the goal all the time. We wanted to see if we could be the first in the world. Uh, we need a new challenge. We we wanted to be the first in the world to go uh, to the podium, also win 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 an Ironman, and then go back successfully to to see if we can actually win in Paris uh, Paris 2024. Actually, there's nobody on the male side that ever have gone from winning in an Ironman or doing very well in an Ironman and then go back to Olympic distance, hardly even qualifying uh, for 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 the Olympics. And this is of course where we think with the way we work that we will be able to do this. But of course, it remains to be seen and. And Olympic racing is on another level. But back to the pace that Christian and Gustav is holding this kind of thing. Next year, uh, and then also with the, now knowing that we are focused on Olympics, Christian is open because he feels that even though he has now won everything, he has the, he has the half Ironman record, he has the full distance, uh, a full Ironman record, he has... Uh, Every championship goal that is to take the both the Olympics, the world champion in in in, in Olympic racing, uh, now even the half Ironman, which was the last one he actually didn't have, and then from Saint George the world championship, the gold medal. But still, he also wants to do it in Kona. So he is. Uh, we are actually considering to go back to Kona next year, uh, but we don't know. Again, it 
Paris 2024 is the main goal. So it depends completely on how fast we're able to, to, or how much time it takes for us to go back to the podium in DTCS racing because it's the highest priority. But if you're able to come back to the close to the podium or on the podium within reasonable time, that gives us, of course, a confidence that we may, we might be able to shift back to Ironman and then back again to 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 VTCS racing. Again, there's there's an uncertainty with that, but we are willing to to maybe do that. So. Uh, with three weeks between the grand final next year and uh, Ironman Kona, we, I know that's going to be a challenge because I, the people that now are focusing on the full distance, they will try, of course, on one side, like you say, copy what we've been doing, but they will even try to do it better because they are spending all the time. And that's the only racing they do. And of course, everybody is going to see if they can go faster. And this is not something that's unique for Christian and Gustav. Everybody can go faster because Christian and Gustav can also go even faster than what we did so far. So why shouldn't other people be able to do that as well? It's just a matter of being able to bridge everything together uh, in the end. But I think that a reason for why we're able to keep such good speed into the races and the kinds of things is obviously because we do specificity. We, 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 we train we train on what we're going to race. And if you know that you can bring it together in, in, in training, then you know that you, you're probably also at least going to bring it together also in racing too. You can't expect to do something completely different in racing than you do in, in, in training. So you guys obviously put out on Strava the week before the race or 10-ish days before the race, <laughs> the, the 40-kilometer run at, at 3.40 per K. Um, yeah. Was that a weekly thing that you guys were doing? Like, I'm, I'm really interested to know about the, the longer running and the more specific running. How many, how many runs leading into the Ironman World Championships did Gustav and Christian do that were, you know, 35, 40, 40 plus Ks that were that fast, you know, three. 30, 340, 350 per K. Was that a weekly thing? Was there any that were, were even longer than that, that one that the boys put out on Strava? Could you maybe talk to me about some specifics there? Yeah, uh, actually, I, I, know, I know there were some speculations whether this was a psychological thing that we were trying to, to play games, mind games with, with our athletes. Uh, you were. To be honest. You were. <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, actually it, 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 if you ask the boys, how much attention I pay to other athletes or coaches, you would be surprised. I, I don't, it's not because I don't want to, but it's really because I don't have the time. I don't have the time because of the way that I'm working with all the scientific part, with research and, and the things that we are doing behind the scenes as well, uh, to always be, try to be one or two steps ahead, being at the cutting edge. So th this allows me very little time to basically look at what other people are doing. And also if we start to do, if, 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 if our main goal would start to do things to basically play games with others we would obviously not be focused on what would be ideal for our athletes so again it just it, it, it's not the way that i work it's not the way that i i, I would even think uh, so if you and, and the and the simple verification of that would be that if you go and you look at one week before saint george you will still see there's a 40k run are pretty close to a 40k run in there. If you go back and you look at Cosumel, you see there's a 40k run in a week before. 
at Cosmo as well. So this is this is something. This is not something we did to to play to play games with 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 other athletes because I really couldn't care less what other athletes and coaches are doing. They should prepare how they mean or think are the best for their athletes and prepare them to race as fast as possible. In the same way that I only care for for my athletes and how how can I prepare them to race as best possible. So the week before, of course, a forty k run is again. Uh, because uh, we have to spend part of our energy budget on 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 biking uh, and and swimming as well. We can't put in too many of the like the huge runs, but we need to put them in, and we need to put them in strategically where we think we will be able to 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 build on it, but also recover from it. And of course. When the training we have been doing in the even the weeks before there have even been combined swimming, biking, and running on each day, which is pretty close to a full Ironman distance. Then when you start to break when you start to break that up into two days, that's obviously going to be easier than doing it in one single day. And if you ex- if you expect to be able to do that on a single day then you should be able at least to be able to do that when you break it up into separate days as well. So if you do only swimming and biking one day, uh, and then so meaning basically that, that that should be a walk in the park and compared to an Ironman where you, you, where you don't have to run afterwards. And then the next day, when you now you have gotten a lot of time to recover, then of course, if you do now a, a medium bike and then you, and then you bring in the, the race specific run afterwards, that's still going to be easy because you don't have the same fatigue in your legs uh, and in your body uh, from that swim and that bike prior to your swim uh, no, to, prior to your run. So again, again, this, this is, this is a control taper uh, leading into a race where, uh, where it's a, comp- where, yeah. So, so that, that, that is the, the simple, simple, and, but also the complicated answer to it. I think there are absolutely smarter ways to do this, but we, with, with Christian only having been able to raise three Ironmans, in his life, Gustav, or, or well, we also, of course, the, the sub seven, so three and a half. Um, and then, of course, uh, with Gustav only having raised two Ironmans in his life, of course, there are just there are just so much research you can do and learning you can do. And that was we, we had to figure that out pretty quickly and then try to raise the quality of it. If I only had been doing Ironman racing with the boys, then of course we would be able to dig even further, make it even smarter and, and put it even more strategically uh, better to, together. But that unfortunately is not for now. Not for now is Paris 2024. In terms of say like, you know, like these words you use, these these scientific words that aren't sort of in the day-to-day uh, jargon we use with, with our training. So like you talk about work and kilojoules and um, MSEE, those kind of things. Most people talk in like terms of pace or power or heart rate. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you use words that are a little – they're a little – the way you're thinking about planning your training and setting your training is a little – a little different to, to what the, the day-to-day age grouper is thinking of it or the, the day-to-day person is thinking of it. In more simple terms for me, Olav, we, like what does, say, like a big ride or a big run for you guys look like? Like, say, for example, in one of the big weeks during the lead-up to Kona, just really simply, like in terms of distance and power, what might a, what might a big ride look like? And then same with the run in terms of, you know, pace and heart rate. What might a big rate like run look like? 
So the bike, of course, the benefit we have there is, of course, uh, inclination is, of course, going to make a change a little bit to the biomechanics when you're riding. But there, uh, I would be not so f- not so obsessed over distance because it would be very difficult unless you went to a specific location that has the same course profile as you're doing in racing then you could of course uh, do just power and go by that distance otherwise because biking you do have the benefit of having mechanical gears on your bike and you you can just maintain rather uh, a cadence so that means also a force uh, a certain force uh, for a given power uh, on your bike we can just go with power and 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 and, and duration more or less as long as you can keep in your position these kind of things so there it would be like a, a, a very specific uh, big day would be then a warm-up. I would do a proper warm-up of uh, 20, 30 minutes warm-up. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. There's a lot of research on why warm-up is important too. So I, I, I'm not going to spend, or I don't think that's that's so interesting, but just, but or to discuss here, but but it's very interesting. Uh, warm-up is very interesting, but it's not uh, not the topic now. And then would be then the main main ride after the warm-up, and that would be then, for example, four hours at uh, your race your race power. So if your race power is going to be 300 or 310 watts, something like this, then, of course, you're going to do that for four hours with very short breaks in between. Again, if all your rides, even the the, the, the bike rides that are going to prepare you for uh, race day are going to be like you're riding 15-minute uh, intervals and at race pace, 300, 310 watts, and then you're going to take a couple of minutes of break in between there. Then you then you then then you are aiming for something that is not sustainable on race day. If 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 you really need that, again you have to remember you have been swimming for almost four k before you get on the bike, and you're going to get off the bike fresh enough that you can run a blistering marathon. So again, it should be fairly easy to hit your power targets, power targets on the bike uh, during during uh, tra- during a training day where you are focusing on the bike. So if you're now going to do a big, big or race specific and a big day, for example, that means that for uh, for on the bike, uh, for Christian Gusta, they would aim somewhere between 290 and 320 in average. Again, we would be able to go harder or, or, or uh, but then we would need a little bit more time for specialization. Uh, so that means basically then riding, for example, for one hour straight with a very short break just to change your bottles on the bike and have a small sip, maybe uh, have a short talk with the with the coach or whatever but but that's basically how you would keep it uh, and then cool down afterwards uh, depending on whether you're going uh, whether it will be long sh- short or long transition to, to to your run for example then the run uh, i if of course you have to look a little bit on what you have been doing in the past but for christian and gustav of course we do several sessions a week which is pretty close to 20k in in even when we do olympic racing uh so that means that bringing it up to 30k is fairly safe uh, but again, we would now bring it down to 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 lower a little bit lower pace. So for them, of course, if we plan to race uh, 333, uh, 335 in, in, in an Ironman, then that would mean basically getting in that kind of speed 
um, that kind of speed, uh, maybe even slightly over speed, but keeping it there and, and again, doing very long intervals. Again, you, you, are, you expect to be able to do this after you've been swimming for 4K, biking for 180K. So then again, if you do only running or you have a long break between your bike and run or swim and run, whatever you do that day, that means, of course, obviously you should be able to run 40K straight. And that should, if you go at a race pace and you're fresh or, or, or uh, yeah, that should feel easy uh when, when when you do it isolated so that's basically how it, it, we, we put it together because specificity is specificity it's, it's it's not something completely different but of course since you're training you can't have like a short break or like this kind of thing and it's not going to make a huge impact it can even sometimes be beneficial because it allows you to refocus you stop a little bit you reflect over what you've been doing trying to get uh, have a small sip of carbs or these kind of things and then go back in but now with a with with a little bit better ability to refocus compared to if you just do the continuous training so again the short break should only be there to refocus to to bring back top-notch quality on what you're doing but again remember that quality is also the specificity so meaning you can't have big breaks or doing something completely different than what you do in racing so do you try and find specificity only in terms of single sessions so like we're going to go do this five-hour bike ride with 30 minutes warm-up 30 minutes cool down and four hours at, at Ironman pace and then you know the next day or two days later you you go and do 30 to 40 k's of running with some long intervals that for Christian and Gustav are 330 335 per k and a lot of it 20 30 k's worth worth of it so that you're you're doing the specific demand of of the race in your training or do you blend it and go well we're doing an Ironman so we want to be specific to an Ironman and you mix those two things together is that too much is that just too much work or is that too much energy expenditure or does it cause too much fatigue or is there was there times in in the Kona build with with Gustav and Christian that you did go super specific and do do long brick sessions that were specific on the swim bike and run um to to, to Ironman pace no uh, yes i would do that normally that is something i would normally do but we didn't have the time actually between bergen and uh, kona to do that before cosmel and before st george we did we, i did that uh, but now that's why for example the the the, the lead in into kona was in that sense suboptimal uh, because i we weren't able to get in all that specificity so that the further away i would be from from a competition i would be more focused on working on isolated parts so then i would work on for example the run i would really make sure that we, when when you do the run you have like the highest possible quality and then we i would allow for enough rest days even in between that run and next time you're going to do like something very demanding on the run or on the bike for example again swimming is something you complete more or less uh, every day and for people that are at this level doing a 4k uh 4k session or 3.8k session in, in in the pool which is even higher speed than what you do in racing is something you 
you could do many times a week without it. It's 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 really a challenge. The biking and the, and the running is the more challenging part when you go from half to full distance Ironman. So there, the further away I would be for a race, I would uh, on 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 the bike again. Also, it's important to put in a little bit fatigue before. So it's actually you. One thing you'll see is that when you do four hours of riding on the bike, four 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 hours fifteen on the bike at and the reason why I say hours is because distance is, is relative in this sense. Because if you are in a place where it's very hilly or a little bit more hilly, so it's doing 180k would take you four and a half, five hours to do. Then of course that's a little bit further away from specificity. It's not bad, but it's a little bit away from from specificity. So that's why I in biking we, we talk mostly about hours, hours and 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 uh, power. Uh, or in or work. The difference between riding four hours out race space fresh versus riding four hours on a bike when you have a tough swim, 3.8K race specific swim just before. So you have a short transition between the two is gonna already hurt a little bit more on the bike than it does without the swim, obviously, because you're drawing from the same resources in the body. You're taking, you're using carbs, and, and it's not like you can purely point burn your carbs. You're gonna take carbs, obviously from the muscles that you are engaging, but also from the rest of the body too, uh, but at a slower rate. So when you are doing the bike now, uh, I would again far away from race put in more specific like a day where they we, we would focus for example on on biking and then a few I would bring more days between the the, the cycling I could even bring the tough swim sessions further apart from very specific bike sessions for Ironman and these kind of things but the closer I get to the race what will happen is that I remove more of all the other training around there to allow them to have more uh, let's say energy or calories available to focus solely on the specific session and this is also the time where i can start to bring these sessions closer and closer to each other as well because obviously if the only thing you do during a week would only be a 3.8k swim and then a uh, four four and a half hour uh, bike specific ride and then a 40k 42k run for example at th- that you will never come into a state where you would have a huge energy deficit for a long time yes you would obviously have it the day after maybe even two days after a little bit how your appetite is and these kind of things but after a couple of days you would be back to you would be back let's say you wouldn't be in a big caloric deficit anymore if you have a lot of other training in there in between as well now before and after then of course that deficit is going to last longer in simple terms so when when further apart longer away from the races then i would then i I could have other training in there in between and these kind of things. I would keep these sessions, the big sessions further apart from each other to allow that they can go into those sessions with very high quality, really focus on specific uh, targets or purposes, efficiency, all these kind of things there. Uh, and but, but the closer we get to the race, of course, that's not what we're going to do. In a race, we are going to do 3.8 swimming, 180k bike, and and 42 kilometer running. So then I want to bring that closer together, and that means even into one big one big day. But that means I may have I have to bring down the training a little bit the days before. So it's like a mini taper, not not necessarily a taper, but allow a little bit, make sure that you don't at least go into that day with a very big caloric deficit. But then also after the day, of course, 
keeping it a little bit easy, uh, easy, but I can still do training, but you would, you would still be able to, to, to get back into a color uh, balance after that as well. And then the closer you get into a race, obviously now you, we need to, to, that's going to, but that, that kind of day is going to, of course, make a big hole in you uh, compared to what you normally do in training, just because of the nature of an Ironman. But now when we get close in the race, of course, we want to ease off a little bit on the load or do, do, do tapering. And when we do this tapering, that means basically that, of course, I'm going to split them up a little bit again so that I will maybe keep them on two days. Like, for example, you saw the week before where they did uh, one day, they did the, the swim and, and the full swim a little bit long or actually longer than they did the full bike. Uh, and then the day after they did a two and a half hour ride on the bike and they did the full run. Uh, that was a 40 K 40 K run. Uh, but you, now you keep them in two on two separate days, but it's easier the days before and it's easier the days after um, obviously plus that we are splitting it up in two days. So it's, it's, it's still a control taper. I know this might be a little tricky to, to answer because maybe you don't really look at it as just like a seven-day week or you don't know the exact numbers. But if you can try and just um, put put it simply for us, what would the average amount of hours that Gustav and Christian spend training a week be, but say p- particularly in the lead-up to like an Ironman World Championships or a 70.3 World Championships or even the Olympics, for example, just like, just like broadly speaking, what, what, how many hours would they, would they on average be doing a week? And then what's the biggest week they might do in a build? So, um, and on average, I would say if, if, if you, if you, I, I can give you it very specifically in calories, calories to kilojoules. Uh, <laughs> it's just too complicated for us. We need hours all up. I can, I can give it to you in calories per week. That's, that's, that's not the problem at all, but it's not going to save people very much. I think <laughs> no one would know what it means with that. <laughs> so, so in calories or maybe I'll leave this because we're actually writing an article on this and we're going to publish this. I'm going to keep that for the, keep that for us a secret until the article is, is, published but in hours uh in hours uh they do on average i would say maybe 30 35 not 30 30 hours maybe on average uh but of course you can't always look on it like that because that would be the normal weeks and then of course you have weeks with competitions then you have travels so it, it, that's why of course the, the yearly average goes down because you do also have these travels and these kind of things too but in 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 normal weeks and months where you are able to focus on training i would say they are closer to 30 big weeks can be somewhere between 35 to 40 hours even and now i'm talking pure i i don't we we don't do very much strength training or at all Uh, we don't do very much or at all core stretching all these kind of things that, that we don't do either. That's for me like demand oriented. Uh, so I would only put in strength training if I see and I've documented that there, there is a specific need to do strength training and then also what specific kind of exercises we're going to do. And even that's going to be benchmarked and see how we can translate that into specificity again. Because again, the reason why you do strength training is obviously that you're trying to become faster in racing. So if we can't bridge it in, then, then it makes no sense to do it. Uh, the same thing with stretching, the same thing, then there is no muscle or all these kind of things so when i'm talking hours i'm talking pure biking swimming and running and that's around 30 hours i would say on average uh a week 
yeah and big weeks 35 40 hours even but those are not so many of and we of course with weeks where there are more traveling competitions we maybe drop down to uh even 20 hours uh, 20 hours of training um that would be approximately it and now i have to ask about lactate because how can i talk to all alexander boo without <laughs> asking lactate questions now it's quite crazy what you guys have done to the sport and the way that lactate monitoring has taken over the sport. Um, like at Kona this year was quite like a weird thing where in 2019, I don't know if there was a single lactate monitor on the island. And then in 2022, purely by you guys bringing it into the sport, every single professional athlete just about was monitoring their lactate. And to the point where, hundreds if not thousands of age groupers are doing it as well can you talk to me olav about the specifics of how you use lactate like i'm assuming not everyone does it the same what is it that you guys are actually doing when you're testing lactate why do you do it what are you looking for can you give me is there any secrets around it as well like is there stuff you can't tell me that that you're you're doing with it that you think other people aren't doing and therefore don't want to let them into or can you tell me every single thing about why you use lactate and how you use lactate uh, uh, so this is where like I, uh, or like we talked about earlier is that uh, not not on this podcast before but uh, and that is that I, I hold very few secrets at all. Uh, I, I'm very open uh, about everything we do. Of course, I would probably not go into all the details of everything. At some point, we will do for sure. We will do. We, we will do at some point. But uh, there are some obvious reasons to use lactate, and then there are some uh, less obvious reasons to use lactate. And 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 this is actually on one of the areas where we are doing stuff too uh, with lactate, which I don't talk very much about uh, yet. The obvious reason to use lactate is to look at adaptation. Uh, and that means, of, of, for, for me, that means basically when you're going out training and these kind of things, the worst thing you would do is to make a 16-week 16, 16 plan and you would just stick to that plan. And then uh, as you get into race, uh, this is when you get the answer whether the training worked or not. The benefit of using lactate, and there are many caveats to this as well, but the benefit of it when you really understand uh, all the mechanisms that are influencing lactate, and there are plenty, uh, and you are able to compensate for this, then you can use lactate as a really good tool to, to see how the adaptation is occurring and then you would adjust the training accordingly. So instead of waiting until race day with getting the answer, you would be able to get the answer as you go. The most obvious reason for why many people implement lactate is to, to do intensity control. I would say that if you do this, you will most likely fail. Not because it doesn't work, but there are so many factors influencing uh, intensity control when using lactate that you really do have to know the physics and physiology, and I'm also talking physics, that are affecting this. Everything from what you really are measuring, because you're measuring a concentration in a volume, everything from nutrition to hydration to uh, other kinds of adaptation, there are so many things that will, uh, that will affect your lactate concentration, some on a daily basis, uh, some on a little bit more, uh, let's say, call it adaptive basis. Uh, which where 
if you had a good way of doing your training before and you used it to gorge your training with, then I would probably stick with that. If I, if people came to me and asked me what would be the single best advice to use in training, I would say stick with power uh, in running and biking and go with pace in, in swimming and, and look at a function of time and power on short and longer duration as a, as a, as a, as a key to or a way to understand adaptation. But, but intensity control using lactate, you really, you, you, most people will probably do more, more things wrong than right if they start to, to adjust it. Think of it this way. You have a in biking, you have a power meter, which is very accurate. It's to most power meters today would be within one to two percent accuracy. Normally, at least if you treat them well, you calibrate, you do or zeroing of them and these kind of things, they, they will normally be very accurate uh, across a range of, uh, of conditions and so. When you're out riding now, if you have a target, so if you go in training and you say that you 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 want to hit somewhere around. 300 watts plus minus 10 watts that's where you want to be plus minus 10 watts that's a small percentage it's a very narrow tar- target to hit but completely doable for anybody that are training for 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 an ironman they, they would be able to do that even with changes in in in, in the gradient if you go a little bit up or if it's slight slightly downhill uh undulating this kind of thing you would be able to stay within those power targets very accurately and even to the extent where we say that if you have more than a 5% deviation in your power target, the old saying is that then you will prop, then you're pacing yourself poorly uh, in, in, in an Ironman. The same with heart rate. You can hit your heart rate targets very accurately by the, by within a few beats by just knowing that there is a little bit of a slow or kinetics involved with, with when you increase the, when you increase the effort a little bit or the speed a little bit, the power a little bit. It takes a little bit time for it to be reflected in your heart rate, but this you, it doesn't take many time, times before you understand this. And you can again you can you can nail a heart rate target within a couple of beats, being good at at, at pacing. But in lact with lactate, first of all, if you get a small, small, small contamination, either by water because you're cleaning the spot that you're sampling from, and you get a little bit of water into this, or you get a little bit of sweat into it because you didn't clean it properly or, 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 or sanitize the spot uh, accurately enough. We have to remember that the amount of blood that is sampled in these lactate analyses are if you use the, 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 the sum of the analyzer, they are down to even 0.2 microliters of blood. 0.2, 0.3. We are using the Nova Bio for one single reason. One, it's one of the most accurate ones that we're first going to spend this much money on, on the analysis. We want something that is extremely accurate or as accurate as possible when you bring it into the field as a portable one. But second, also, it's the, this it is the elected meter that brings the best compromise between short time to answer. So when you make the prick and you sample the blood, you get an answer within 30 seconds. We don't want to wait to give this kind of feedback until the next interval. I want to give it to them before they start the next intervals. We need an analyzer that analyzes it quickly, but more importantly, it needs to be accurate. And this one samples from 0.7 microliters of blood. Think of what it's so little blood still, but still going from 0.2 to 0.7 microliters of blood. That's the several hundred percents more blood, but still so little blood that only a small, tiny droplet of, 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 of moist, water moist, or, or, or which, which then would basically dilute the blood and will bring down the lactate concentration on the analyzer, 
or you get a small contamination of sweat, which holds normally 10 to 50 times more uh, lactate than, and unfortunately it's not constant. That would be very, very convenient if it was a constant concentration difference between what you have in your blood and in, in, in your sweat, but it's not, is highly fluctuating. So that means that a small, tiny part of, of, of sweat into this, this blood now that you are drawing into, into the, the strip will increase the lactate concentration a tiny bit. If you now go from, let's say you're targeting three millimoles, so use a simple number, but you are getting 2.7 instead, how on earth would you know this is wrong? You wouldn't. And if you go now from three, to 3.3 or 3.45 instead, how would you know this is wrong? And if you now are making a decision based on this, you say, oh, it's 2.7, you need to go a little bit harder. But I say, ah, but it is harder. Yeah, but you need to go harder. It says you're a little bit too low and we want to keep this specific. You're now dri driving up, you, you think of it this way, you're now increasing your lactic concentration. You, 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 if it was three, but you got 2.7, that's already more than the 10% deviation in your lactic concentration. And now I'm, grossly oversimplification oversimplifying this in the same way if you go by 3.3 or 3.4 and you now are bringing it down to three you, you there's a there's a 10 reduction more than 10 reduction in your lactic concentration but you would see that your power numbers gonna vary more or less or, or and, and your speed so the you can only most likely do wrong unless you are extremely trained in using lactate and you do understand all the factors that influence it from contamination to hydration, dehydration, nutrition, uh, there, plasma, there, there, there's, there's so many things that do affect your lactate concentration because you're not measuring lactate volume. You're measuring lactate concentration. And, and, and that means that also even the spot you're sampling on the body also makes a difference, uh, whether you're measuring in the earlobe or in, in the finger, or even if you measure on, uh, on how say, even if you measure straight into the muscle, it will be a much higher concentration of, of, uh, of lactate. Because again, we have to remember we are measuring something in the, in the blood, not where it is produced. It is produced in the muscles. So there are so many caveats to measuring with lactate that most likely you can only do wrong. So if you decide to bring, I don't say the lactate is bad because obviously we use a lot of lactates, but one just have to understand there are many implications, many caveats or, or, or pitfalls uh, with, with lactate that if you decide to bring it in, you have to consider a huge investment. It is an investment both in time, research, understanding before this, you, you can trust your lactate numbers in the same way you do with power, speed, and these kind of things. And that's, of course, where all the secret comes in of how I basically use this. Because most people, when we see their copying and they use it basically for lack for intensity control and all these kind of things, uh, while we can also do that to try to hit some numbers. But again, I would very easily distinguish when I have a small contamination there, both because I'm not only using lactate, I'm using several other sources too that I can compare that data with. And then to get your some insight from you on other things that you do, because I'm assuming there's no stone left unturned with the, the training you're prescribing, the environment you're creating, the things you're choosing to do. It Nothing seems very random. So can I just maybe dot point a few and then like I'll say one and then you just give me 
you know, the details on if you use it, how you use it and, and those kind of things, particularly with, with Gustav and Christian leading into these big races. Sure. I, again, like I said, we, we don't keep much secrets, so feel free to shoot. Altitude training. Yes. So with, with altitude, do you guys use it? And, and if so, how do you use it? Yes, uh, we use altitude training uh, quite extensively. Um, and obviously, it is to increase the hemoglobin mass uh, in the body, which is basically the uh, part of the blood which carries the oxygen. Uh, and for every gram of mass, we are able to increase uh, the blood uh, or hemoglobin uh, with uh, basically means one gram, one gram of increase in hemoglobin mass means basically uh, 1.34 milliliter extra of oxygen. That's just how, how many, how many uh, oxygen molecules you, you can carry per, per, per hemoglobin. Uh, but we use that quite a lot. Uh, this year, we, I, I actually don't know how many weeks we've been at altitude in total, but I would say that we are probably closer to, I think we must be closer to six months, actually. Let's say five, five months, let's say five to be on the safe side. But it's, it's pretty, this year has been pretty, it will be at the end of the year, uh, pretty close to, to, uh, to five, six, six months, I would say. And with that, is there like specific amounts of time you might spend there, like say before the Ironman World Championships or before the Olympics? Is there a specific amount of time you want to be at altitude? And is there a specific amount of time you want to get to the race date? Like, is there a specific amount of time that you want to stay there until the race? Like, you know, you want to be at altitude until six days before the race or 10 days before the race. And then when you're at altitude, how much of your training is done at altitude and is that important or do you follow the the old school thinking of um, sleep up high and train down low live high train high <laughs> we would do we only would go down for uh if for example in sierra nevada the problem there is that there is no place to do bike riding up in sierra nevada unless you go on a turbo uh inside um, uh, so that means riding down to approximately a thousand meters, and then they do the riding there. That's that there. There are pretty good, uh, uh, good locations for for, for riding. Fongomer, then we can be high, or it's not very high, but that's around eight thousand between one thousand six and two thousand meters. I would say most of the places where we where we go, but uh, there we stay high all the time. And ideally, I would basically stay high all the time if i could of course this again boils down a little bit to how you approach altitude training um i could i could do it differently too but but again you have to look at what you really are trying to to uh, manipulate or improve and in our sense we are we are at altitude obviously in the end to increase the performance and going to altitude, then we go to altitude because we want to increase the performance as a function of that. We say that uh, the cardiovascular or central system is a limitation and we need to uh, uh, improve that, for example, then most easily at that time, for example, by increasing the hemoglobin mass or the, the blood that is 
able to carry more oxygen per per time around in your body. So train high, live high. Um, then the duration that, again, one aspect we haven't talked very much about and which I pay a lot of attention to, and that's the psychological aspect of it. So going to altitude can be demanding, especially Sierra Nevada is very demanding, but that's because the cuisine, which is up in Sierra Nevada, is to the likings of, of, of people living in Spain very much. And then we very often see when also when I speak uh, with some other coach friends of mine, which also using Sierra Nevada, that they find the cuisine up in Sierra Nevada quite tough to um, live with over a long time. Uh, and that basically means that we have been trying to stay in Sierra Nevada for six weeks, seven weeks. But what we see is the limitation. It's not necessarily that it's not possible to, to be up there and train. And it's very nice facilities to train at. Super nice people that we really enjoy staying with uh, at the center there. But uh, it's just that they, are, they, they come to a point where they struggle with actually eating, getting in enough food up there, and which then increases the logistics because then we have to travel down to, to, to uh, Granada to buy food, make our own food and all these kind of things, which is also okay. But the possibility to make food up in Sierra Nevada is not very good. So these senses here in Nevada limits itself by three to four weeks. Uh, staying there, but we could easily have stayed there longer. Uh, and of course, because it's difficult to get in uh, specificity just because of the terrain. For Romeu, we could stay all year. We could stay there the whole year if we really wanted to. But we, because we have races, families, uh, and, and, and other obligations, we can't stay there all year. That's for one. But second, also the, the weather up there is not very ideal for triathletes for throughout the whole year. So you become like a little bit of a weather nomad. But I would say altitude, that's fantastic. It's a really great tool. Um, but it's also nice to mix in sea level camps too. And the reason for that is because in the same way that you, uh, when you go to altitude, at some point, hopefully, you have acclimatized to the point where you're able to do the same kind of work up at altitude for the same metabolic demand. So more or less, there, there would be no difference between what you did pre-altitude pre in terms of, uh, of, 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 of speed and, and demand. And that is basically now the same up at altitude. At this point, you can, of course, start to do other things up at altitude, or you can basically just say that, okay, now it makes more sense to go back to, to sea level and maybe we, and we would try to bring uh, that into slightly higher speed at sea level again if you if you if you come back to sea level and you have no intention of racing faster training a little bit faster then 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 you can question yourself why did you go to altitude at all of course you can use it as a recovery mechanism or let's say peripheral recovery mechanism because you can you can control things more centrally uh, and you're looking for uh, to keep things at uh, the same metabolic demand at altitude, but that means that the muscular or let's say the impact force and other things on the muscles and everything will now be lower uh, at altitude before you adapt it. And of course, when you adapt it, it will be more or less the same. So it could be a way of bringing in peripheral, let's call it peripheral or reduced reduced impact or stimulus to, 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 to the peripheral system and, and allow that to, to adapt a little bit differently. But at sea level, then the whole goal would be to train and race faster. Otherwise, uh, you have to question where you use where you spend your time. Maybe you could have done 
what you then intended to do at altitude differently and in, 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 in better on another place because recovery also takes a little bit longer time at altitude than it does at sea level. Uh, so leading into races, uh, it depends again on altitude. If it's very high altitude, then again, if I plan to go race, be able to race faster at sea level, I would bring go down normally. If it was extremely like Olympic, I would go down earlier to start to bring in that overspeed or let's call it overspeed compared to what I did before uh, I went to altitude and then be able to bring that into races of in during the competition. If it's less important races, then I can wait longer at altitude because I, there will maybe be a more important race coming later on, which I wanted to, 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 to really develop that overspeed into, for example. So it depends very much on one, the altitude I stay at. If it's a lower altitude, you can be closer to competitions. If a high altitude, uh, then I would stay there. Uh, then I would go down to sea level earlier. But again, uh, one, you have to remember also that there is a difference between what kind of sport you're doing. So if you're doing a high velocity sport, that means that, or let's say it's uh, still endure, but an uh, endurance uh, high velocity sport like sprinters and triathlon or rowing, uh, kayaking, these kind of things, then I would probably go down to sea level earlier if I was racing at sea level, uh, because up at altitude, you, you would normally be further away, unless you are not 100% adapted, you would be further away from your race specific uh, speed, for example, that you're looking to really develop leading into the race. So that means I would need to go then further. If, if, if you're doing an Ironman race, for example, that's still at a very low, low speed compared to many of these, uh, compared to the Olympic sports. So in that sense, I could probably be at altitude much closer leading into the race because I could still work at race, uh, race pace uh, or the uh, power uh, uh, still at, at altitude compared to uh, uh, yeah the Olympic sport. So the the race you're going to do uh, dictates the race you're going to do and the location you stay to prepare at the altitude. Like, that's going to dictate very much how long and when uh, I go down to a race between the two. And what about heat training, Olaf? So heat training, uh, yes, absolutely. This is probably where I've think we are or have and still is one or the most advanced uh, in the field yet still uh, we actually thought that more people would bridge up and understand the mechanisms earlier uh, actually and because we got one year extra leading into olympics we would I, I thought actually much more people so we were even ready to push the button to publish the work that we had done but after the after olympics we actually learned that people when people started to talk a little bit what they'd been doing these kind of things we felt okay this is still a card this is still an ace we're going to keep on hand for some more time and and we we, we will publish eventually uh, and, and and all the information that uh, that of how we prepared and all these kind of things but it's it's a card we we keep a little bit close to ourselves still because uh, we see people have so many different approaches to to heat training still telling us that this is still a competitive advantage so but heat training absolutely we use that uh, systematically so obviously you're not going to go into too much detail there it, it being something that you think you've got an advantage on on your competition with but if I ask some questions about it and there's stuff you can answer you can just tell me shut up Jack I've just said it secret I'm not answering that but I'll, I'll try and push the limits a little bit here Olav. okay are you guys are you guys doing anything specifically 
that no one else is doing or are you just doing things a little differently but the same? So what I mean by that is pretty much everyone seems to be using heat heat training passively, like sitting in a sauna, sitting in a sauna out, um, directly after a training session um, or, or, or sitting in a hot bath. And then a lot of people seem to be using um, heat training um, actively. So they might run, do an easy run, but a bit laid up or go on into a hot room in while they're on a, an indoor bike trainer and do it or swim in a wetsuit indoors. Are you guys doing that same stuff? And, and the differences in maybe like duration or, or when or how or for how long? Or are you actually doing different things that people aren't doing? We are doing different things. And I think this is a field where I'm going to keep it a little bit more open. Because if people want to do the research on what we are doing, they will find, they, they will, of course, learn quite a lot. They will already see quite a lot. But I'm going to keep it a little bit difficult for them yet because eventually everybody, I think that in the end, everybody is going to converge more or less towards, I, I, we also still have work to do. I don't say that we, our program uh, is finished, uh, developed, and we, we, we just keep it one way. We are continuously developing this. I'm, I'm working very closely with a Swiss uh, company, uh, Green Tech. Um, and on top of that, I still spend also quite a lot of money on, on pills, uh, temperature pills that we uh, as well. So we have double double redundancy. But I work very closely with Green Tech, or the ones that are making the core sensor in Switzerland, uh, because this is a field where we are continuously advancing as well. So, but, so I'm going to keep it a little bit. Uh, again, people will find out, of course, a lot. They will see pictures from the guys swimming in wetsuits. They will see, uh, of course, we are riding indoors. Uh, and People know we are doing heat training and these kind of things. But I, I think uh, uh, for now, I will keep that as a semi-secret, meaning that people will be able to understand. People will see a lot of what we do, but the people that don't, I'm going to keep it a little bit open for them and then then eventually we're going to publish anyway what we what we are doing i think we are probably more, a lot of the work that i'm doing we will start some articles will come out uh, next year um but i think most of them will come out in or more much more will come out in 2024 yeah i'm gonna ask two more questions on it again feel free to, to not answer <laughs> how important is it olav to train outside in the heat of the day leading into a hot race, but not only into a hot race, into a cool race to get the same adaptation to, to heat training. Because obviously you don't just do heat training to acclimatize to race day condition conditions. Similar to altitude, you might do it to increase hemoglobin mass or you know um, blood plasma volume and those kind of things. How important is it throughout your training program that you're doing sessions in the heat of the day? So again, this boils down to the to, 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 to the specificity. Again, if you if if you plan to race in heat, heat is a part of the demand that you need to acclimatize to. So if you're gonna do all your big training and these kind of things when when there are cool conditions or uh, and so on, that is something very different than the demand that you're putting your body under. And then how do you expect your body to 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 be able to race at the same output? 
if you're training for something completely different again, or the conditions are very different. So again, you need to consider demands. If, if you're racing at altitude, you go, of course, the altitude acclimatize so that you're, you can't actually output the, according to the demand at altitude. You don't prepare at sea level. Same way with heat, you have to prepare for the heat. In, uh, so that means if the race is during the day, you have to prepare for that. And if it's cold conditions, you can't expect to perform very well, even in very cold conditions, unless you actually also prepare for that. So that it means that a cold water swim is going to be cold. So that and, and it's much easier to cramp up and these kind of things, get a cold shock and so on. So if the first time you jump into cold water is the time when it's cold during your race, don't expect that it's going to be equal to what you have been trained for. So again, the specificity, specificity is specificity. It means basically trying to replicate or simulate as closely as possible what you're going to do on race day, both in terms of environment, how you train and all these kind of things. And then with heat training, Olav, my, my last question around that is, is the point of heat training just to to get hot or is it more specific than that so is it are you are you guys wanting to to get your core body temperatures to very specific heats for for optimal adaptation or is it just hey we we get in a wetsuit and we swim and it makes us hot and therefore we 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 get the benefits of heat training or we sit in a sauna um, that's at 70 degrees and we sit there for 30 minutes because that sounds about right or is is a big part of like or is one of the the things that you guys are doing better than everyone else actually targeting specific body temperatures you're trying to trying to get to inside of your heat training okay this is a this is actually a very important question uh because this is this comes back a little bit to uh the physiologist versus the coach that has no physiological background the the academic versus the practitioner uh and that is that what kind of core temperature you're going to have on race day or what kind of plasma volume you're going to have on race day really doesn't matter. What matters is the performance on race day. Everything else, what, 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 what your core temperature is going to adapt to is more a function of adaptation or your plasma volume is a more function of adaptation. So again, if you, if you, I think that if you go about that, you're targeting a specific uh, core temperature or, or, or that you want to increase your plasma volume by X amount of percentage or something like this, that has nothing to do with the demand. And the body is, what we have to remember is the body is so complicated, so sophisticated, so complicated, and so extremely adaptive that it will always try to adapt to the demand of what you are stimulating or what you are basically exposing it for. And that means also that when you are, but at the same time, the body will also try to do this with the least or as efficiently as possible. That's why I, I always come back to physics and the first law of thermodynamics. And that means you can't, you can't create energy. You can't, you destroy energy. You can only convert energy from one form to another. So speed, power, calories, calories, power, speed. Uh, so, but but it would, but but the body will always try to do that as efficiently as possible, spending the least possible calories. This is just survival. And then the other part of it is the the stationary action principle, or very often called the the law of least action. And that is that if you pour a, a glass of water on a hill, 
down a hill. The water will always try to find the simplest way to run down the hill. So that means that when you are adapting, of course, you need to figure out how do I adapt to the race? Of course, you need to bring this up gradually. You can't expect if you haven't run a marathon to run a marathon tomorrow. You can't expect to do an Ironman tomorrow if you haven't trained for this. Of course, you can always try to to, to, to crawl yourself through it uh, or, with, with or, or, or get yourself through it with very poor performance. But again, we, we are training for something because we want that body to adapt to it. And then the closer we get to the race, we're bringing it more and more together because that, that, that is what you're really going to do on race day. And that the same thing also comes with, with heat. It means that if you are planning to run a marathon uh, and you know that the temperature is going to be around 28, 30 degrees, that means that you have to bring it first First, you, you, you build it up. So you, you, you break it up into pieces and where you are getting, you're being more gentle with your body and you're allowing your body to adapt because you're not adapted the first time you're going to do this. You have to allow for your body to adapt to this. So again, when you're measuring your core temperature, when you're measuring plasma volume, and I have, here is also an important thing, you can't do understand that hemoglobin concentration, hematocrit that you measure at your doctor, that's, that has nothing to do with plasma volume or hemoglobin mass because there's a concentration in in, 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 in a in a volume so you can even uh, if you if you hydrate well uh, or if you get dehydrated uh, that means that uh, these values hemoglobin concentration and, and hematocrit will change just a function of that but plasma so when we talk about plasma volume there are gold standards for how to do this and this you would do using carbon monoxide rebreathing uh, which is done a few places in the world we i have one of these machines um and but i never use it to target a certain plasma volume i don't use core temperature to target a specific temperature i use them as a vehicle to understand adaptation so when i am putting the athletes out in an environment and exposing them to a new environment, let's say a hot environment. The way I use this instrument is to understand how quickly or the kinetics behind the adaptation. What is changing to the core temperature? How quickly do they adapt? How much time do they need to adapt? Because when I do this first time, of course, I have a benchmark. The second time, I, 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 I can try to maybe do things differently because I want, to, want it to happen faster, for example. And then I see, no, now the adaptation goes slower. But again, instead of making the 16 weeks plan and then just sticking that plan into the race, all these tools allow me to understand the adaptation as it happens and then be smarter about how I make the program, the adjustments and these kind of things to, 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 to make the athletes faster, adapt faster, understand how the mechanisms are in the body. So again, this is where the academics, he would maybe target it from, of course, not all. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a little bit stereotypic when I, when I say it this way, but that's why there's great coaches. You can find so many great coaches. They have no physiological background at all but they have just had to understand this from a practical way and that is what you're trying to do in the end you're trying to be practical because you, you you're just trying to become faster or, or or cope with the demand that is there but you know that this is what we need but if you approach it from a physiological approach instead or an academic approach it's very easy to obsess over like single metrics that the body easily compensates for in many other domains so again temperature plasma volume all these kind of things they are just small pieces of a big puzzle and the easiest way to understand the puzzle is 
work on it from a requirement perspective, demand perspective. This is the pace. This is the power. We know that in the Kona on a day like this had been won by this marathon speed, this this power, this swim speeds more or less. So we know that okay, if of course if if you're an age grouper and and you normally spend 14 hours, you can't just expect that you if you put you you start to ride with the power or, or speed. Um, that the, uh, the the pros are or elites are that you're going to do that of course then there's a much longer time for adaptation that requires maybe years even for you to bring it up there but for a pro or an elite where basically they are training approximately the same volume or doing approximately the same kind of work each week and all this kind of thing then it's more about saying okay this is the speed we know that we have to be able to do after the bike so obviously we need to be able to run after the bike not isolated we need to bring it together and that's the same thing with everything with heat with altitude everything like this it's 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 adaptation is something we try to understand to be smarter about it but you can't train from it by because again we measure plasma volume for example, or the core temperature. But there are so many other things also happening in the body at the same time, regulating, that are making up or trying to make your body faster. Uh, That understanding plasma or changing plasma volume, understanding changing core temperature as a function of the same power duration or or velocity duration, speed duration, that, that, that is more a vehicle to understand how quickly something is happening and, and if you need to make adjustments and these kind of things. And that's, I think that the question you asked, it's, it's so important to understand that we very often talk about physiological components, uh, but they only make up for very small parts in the body. And there's so much more things in the body from a physiological and psychological uh, aspect uh, or perspective that we can't measure that, you should never use them to control something. You should reduce them to understand rather what is happening because in the end, it really doesn't matter whether whether your, whether your core temperature is 40 or 38 if the guy that has 40 wins and the 38 doesn't or, the, or, or, or that if you have plasma volume or the opposite, that the guy that has 40 loses and the guy that has 38 that that uh, that wins because you will find both cases and the same thing comes with plasma volume it doesn't matter whether you have a high plasma volume or low plasma volume if you won the competition in the end then every answer is correct you can say that well for this athlete we need uh, we see that he has a little bit higher plasma volume for this athlete has a little bit lower plasma volume but this is also that comes back to what i call individualization or individual performance signature and that is that what is the right number for one is not necessarily the right number for another one because we are not doing statistics we are trying to prepare each single athlete in the same way that you if you look at christian and gustav they have two very different physiques if you look at their bodies but still who's going to win on race day comes down to race day and who has the day rather than that i could say that well christian uh even Two three years ago, people would say that Christian, no, 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 he 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 has the body of a, he has the legs of a speed skater, not not an endurance athlete. Well, uh, he nobody have won more uh, triathlon or, or more gold medals or championships now uh, than, than, than 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 Christian with Olympic and records and all this kind. Of, and then you have Gustav on the other side that have won the the uh, the seventy point trees the last years and also now to Kona uh, despite Christian. 
Christian uh, uh, having won all the gold and other things. So, so basically, if you look at them, they are very different. But at the same time, at the same time, you also see that um, that's why the, 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 there needs to be a part of individualization into it. And that is what, when you bring in that individualization, that's why you can see two people. Yes, you can call them unique in one sense, but they're also unique in their separate ways, looking very differently too. Uh, but that means also that if I apply the same training to Gustav or, or, or that I do for Christian or vice versa, or I would say, oh, this is, we, we know that this is the core temperature we would like to target because it worked for Christian, that won't work for Gustav, the same with plasma volume and all these kind of things. We can say that, yes, there are some statistical things that we see higher is better for, for, for when it comes to uh, volume and performance. Uh, probably there is a good thing with plasma, but more plasma is good. But we also have to remember that higher plasma volume also has a higher energetic cost for the body because the body also now needs to use more energy to heat up this extra plasma, this extra fluid in your body. And the body really doesn't like that. In the same way, that it's very costly for the body to have a huge heart because the heart is grossly inefficient. So the body doesn't want to have a big heart unless it really wants to. And you can even argue that in, in a race, like an Ironman, it's not very beneficial to have a very high VO2 max because that will require a big heart and a big heart is grossly inefficient. And that means that if you have a cap to how much calories you can turn over per time, that means that more energy of that, that cap of calories that you can turn over more time has to go to feed a very in, in, inefficient heart, big heart. So actually it's better to maybe bring down the size of the heart a little bit and bring down, so basically bringing down your view to max because that would allow you to race faster. But what that view to max is going to be in the end is individual. So it's, it's, it's a complicated answer to a very good question uh, and an extremely important question. But that's why I would say that the main the main takeaway from this from me would or to, to give to everybody would be that don't focus too much on physiology, focus on the demand, and then rather learn what is happening with physiology. And when you find an athlete is performing well, and just try to understand the physiology of that athlete as accurately as possible, and then you're trying to replicate that, and you're trying, but again, also at the same time, trying to raise the quality. And, and maybe even improve it a little bit. So again, it is individual, but again, understand demand is, is where the focus have to be. Um, that means understanding what speed, power, and time do you have to hit to, to be in the position that you want to be, if it's winning, setting a record, whatever. And then all the physiological tools or, or metrics and everything we have is a way to understand adaptation understand adaptation either to the race demand to altitude to heat whatever it is that you are trying to adapt to so so uh, but uh, you can only go wrong i think by by overly focusing on physiology because there's so many things we can't measure but again you can't go wrong if you have a sound approach to how you're gonna bring an athlete in in, in a gentle way and adapting him to run a 42k run after he's been biking 180k after he's been swimming 3.8k in a certain temperature uh, and so on i don't write down questions before i do any interview Olaf. i just i watch the sport of triathlon i follow it as closely as as i possibly can and so i feel like i get into a pretty good position to be able to have a conversation because i've already thought about a hundred times over the last year like what questions would i ask Olaf alexander boo if i got to chat to him so it comes pretty naturally but as you talk i was sort of like 
you know, as pod being a podcast host is like someone will be talking to you and you, you'll start to think about, Oh, what's the next question I could ask. You can't just get too caught listening to what they're saying. You have to be thinking of the next questions. And I had in my head three questions to ask based off what you said. And then you started to cover, I'm not even joking, all three of them. Like you brought them up, even though you hadn't even really started to talk about any three of them. It was pretty crazy how it happened. So I'm just going to tick off those three questions if I can remember them and don't, don't, uh, don't forget them. But the first one was you talked about diet and, and body weight and all you talked about body weight and as a result diet, I guess. And I think one of the craziest things about triathlon in the last couple of years has been the fascination with Christian Blumenfeld's body. And I know I talked to Mikael about this and, and he sort of just said like he, the same things, what you say, he, he said a bit more dryly that it doesn't matter. He's got a big, a big chest and he's fast type of thing. Um, what do you guys think inside the training camp? Like, do you guys talk about the fact that, and I hate to talk about this in, I don't want it to come across negative because I'm such a proponent for, for like having uh, like positive um, messaging around the way we eat and the way we look. I think, um, I think eating disorders inside of um, long course triathlon and, and running and cycling, uh, I think it's really sad. I, I, it's something I really dislike about the sport. I think it's, it ruins more lives than it, than it, than it helps. So I, I don't want you to think that, that I'm someone who, who thinks it's funny and that kind of thing. But, you know, you'll hear a lot of people talk about the fact that Christian is fat. Like they will openly call him fat and they'll, they'll say, how does this guy who's chubby win races like this? And it makes me a little bit um, angry um, when I hear it. So I, I must, like, I, I must assume that you guys don't love hearing it, but maybe I am just assuming there and you don't care at all. What, what, what does get talked about between yourself and Christian and, and inside the camp when, when there's so much comment on, on his body shape? It's such a good question uh, that uh, I really want to answer this because this is a happy message. And that is that first of all, again, because we do, or put, I, I actually got to first put it this way. Uh, if you gave me an athlete that I can easily gain weight from the food he's eating, because there is one thing we haven't talked about yet. And that is actually because very often we say that your calories in has to be this, uh, be in balance with your calories out to, to maintain your weight. Actually, it's not that simple. It's actually caloric uptake that has to be the same as your caloric outtake to be in balance. And by that, you already understand there is one other efficiency parameter there. And this is where, of course, the famous words, uh, Christian have said that, uh, that I'm doing uh, studies on his, his thesis. Uh, and now we're going to do a quite extensive one on on his and Christians, uh, no, he Christians and, and Gustavs, uh, and some maybe some of the other athletes also in the Olympic program uh, thesis because it's actually about uptake. How well do you take up the the different nutri nutrients from the food that you are eating? And there, this is such an interesting field. We have to come back to later, uh, but it's super interesting. But, uh, and it, it, we have all the cool tools to really measure this as well. Uh, with bomb calorimeters, we are burning the feces and everything. But, uh, but to the happy message here is that if you gave me two athletes and the only information I knew about them was basically how much food they were eating and how easily they were adding weight, I would pick the athlete that had the best appetite and added the easiest way to his body. And maybe most, most important, the easiest way to his body. So if he almost like you have this saying that if you almost look, uh, yeah, some people cannot almost only look at the food and then they start to add fat on the body. Give me that athlete any day over the athlete that is really struggling to add, uh, add weight to his body. 
the simple analogy behind that is that remember no speed without cal- no speed without power and no power without calories and if we are at the same time look at statistics again if we're going to look at statistics and we plot performance on the x axis and amount of work or volume on the y axis then basically we see that is uh, probably one of the single best predictor of performance is the amount of volume you are training at least you can look at it like somebody that almost training nothing. They, they, they also race accordingly. Age groupers, they train more, they race faster. The professionals, they train even more and they race the fastest. So uh, now we can imagine then, okay, no speed without power, no power without or, or calories. So that means that, well, if you're going to train more, you have to be able to eat more. That's that's simple. But the problem again is that at some point you're going to get fed up by all the food you're going to eat. So that's going to be a limitation to you. So if now if you have the very good evolutionary trait, that you actually can add very easily weight to your body by just looking at food. Yes, it's going to create, it's going to maybe uh, require a little bit more discipline of you because you have to be a little bit more disciplined and you can't eat whatever you want all the time. Maybe you have to, if you want to maintain a certain weight, for example. So you have to be a little bit more disciplined, but I rather want you to be disciplined in that field and having that possibility and then eat much, much more. So uh, when you really need to it, so you add more weight or whatever, because that's again going to be then the limitation to your y-axis more volume so that you can race faster on x-axis so christian one of the things that we did in norway have very conservative we have very conservative approach when it comes to your fat percentage for for elite athletes and these kind of things if you look at an athlete typically coming from spain italy uh, france and so on you will normally and they would even have like be very strict on your diet and tell you no you need to lose weight and this kind of thing we never do this in norway um, or I would at least not in, 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 in the Olympic federations and so on. Uh, and one thing that's quite interesting is of course, that we would maybe say, okay, a race ideal weight for you would maybe be a little bit lighter or a little bit, uh, a little bit less weight. But one of the things that I did research with Christian and Gustav, uh, and Kasper, uh, leading into Tokyo Olympics was that we saw that every time, even by conservative standards, Christian, for example, reduced his weight beyond where people in Spain, France, Italy, he would still be considered fat. His absolute view to max went down even faster. Of course, at some point, it's not like you can just, oh, again, but then just eat and add a lot of weight on the body because fat is also uh, non-active. It's not, it's, it's no muscles or anything. But again, the body is extremely smart. So it it's also adapts. But very often we talk about watts per kilogram, for example. The problem when you do things by watts per kilogram and you do a 20-minute test or something like this, very short duration tests, is that your body will compensate maybe by feeding much more glycogen instead. So it looks like you're losing weight, yes, or you are losing weight, and it looks like you're getting faster as well or getting more powerful then because your watts stays the same, but your weight goes down. But in reality, you're just compensating with maybe uh, and adapting to using more glycogen in, in, in a short amount of time by percentage. At some point, it will be a problem, will become a problem, but you can compensate. Again, the body is an extremely uh, adaptive me- uh, or, or organism. So one of the things we saw with Christian Gustav was that, of course, that as the weight came down, also the VO2 max came down. And this is not very sustainable, of course. This is not what we want to have in racing. We want to have the highest VO2 per kilogram because in the end, it starts with calories it doesn't start with power start with calories and obviously the higher vo2 per kilogram you can have and that means maybe you have to add add increase your weight 
even. Again, we, you don't know, know the answer before you have done this kind of testing. Of course, I tested Christian or Gust over years, many years over, over uh, Christian leading into Rio even, but now over a complete Olympic cycle leading into Tokyo. And then we do see that they do race faster with more fats on their body. So again, I would rather pick a athlete with too much fat on their body and learn them discipline when it comes to eating, if required, than an athlete that is too skinny. So being skinny is probably going to make you slower than faster. Being a little bit fatter is probably going to make you faster than slower. So again, all starts with calories and people that have uh, good abilities to add weight to the body, they are probably uh, best evolutionistic, also prepared to be, uh, to really ramp up the volume, go faster in the end. And then the the other thing you were sort of talking about there, Olav, was um, the boys' VO2 max um, and the impact that, that, that losing weight can can have on the, the VO2 max of the athletes. And and really what I want to want to know about is just how the VO2 max of, say, Gustav and Christian impacts their performance in general. Um, obviously, because with Christian particularly, there's a lot of videos on YouTube and on his Instagram of him, um, you know, doing VO2 max tests and getting really high results. Like I think like 91, 92 VO2 max kind of scores, which is seriously, seriously high, like as high as you're, you're ever going to see. Um, but can you sort of, yeah, can you talk to me about the role of VO2 max in say Ironman and Ironman 70.3 racing and Olympic distance racing and like how important it is and what it actually is. And like, does having an insanely high VO2 max like Christians matter and um, compare that to like, say Gustav's Gustav Eden's VO2 max. Um, so uh, again, what's interesting is of, of course, again, uh, the sample that I am representing here is of course a small sample because it is mainly our Olympic, uh, Olympic, uh, uh, triathletes. So it's a small group. And of course I cannot speak for it in, in, in a big or a broader sense, but what's quite interesting to see across these athletes that we have. And that I also have discussed internally with one of my uh, colleagues. Uh, and that is that there seems to be a sweet spot. And of course, this might not be static. They can, this, that there are many things that, that, that potentially uh, will affect this. Uh, and we, we have been speculating a little bit around what. But uh, And that is that uh, there, there, again, there seems to be a sweet spot when it comes to weight that of course, too, too big weight will probably not be ideal, and but also the same way that a too low weight is not ideal at all. And that too low weight seems to be far more conservative than what we even have considered by what I would cons- what I would say is conservative standards in Norway when it comes to what kind of fat percent or that that would be ideal for an for an elite athlete. And this seems to be uniform across those athletes we have, both Christian, Gustav, Kasper, Vettler. Uh, the interesting thing, uh, of course, yes, the, the, well, both Christian and Gustav uh, have, and Kasper have clocked in above 90 milliliters per minute per kilogram. I think if I recollect correctly, I had them in the lab to 93 point something. Again, it requires individualization, some individualization to get there, but uh that's not where they're racing the fastest in an Olympic racing. And I think the, the simple the simple analogy here would be that VO2 max is a 
something you can do for a very short duration. So it would be like your five minute. Uh, we know that like a five minute, four five minute power uh, is, how say, very representative for your for your VO two max. So if you know the biochemical efficiency or oxygen consumption for an athlete per milli, so milliliter per what produced, then you can almost take your somewhere between three and five minute power normally for an athlete and multiply that by by that milliliter per uh, milliliter per minute uh, not milliliter per watt consumption and you you get their absolute view to max and then just divide by way that that's simple it but uh what's interesting to see is that in olympic distance racing you're 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 not going to do you really don't need to have a high five minute power or even a high three minute power even further away i would say um it's it, it, it more important is your the ability to yes you have to cope with some surges and other things which we know is important for the breakaways but also how the nature of olympic distance racing is but again uh if that starts to compromise the ability to have a high high uh, average power or high average speed over uh two hours or one hour 45 minutes uh, then that's not being productive at all and i think that's one of the issues to be too many at least that they have a too poor fraction utilization of oxygen so meaning that the point where they start to accumulate for example lactate happens at a too low percentage of vo2 max uh, but what maybe more interestingly, what we found during this year with the long distance uh, long distance uh, triathlon or Ironman project was that I, I of course I had been measuring Christian and Gustav in the lab before the Olympics and of course I got them back into the lab fairly short after we measured it and then I measured again after we were done with Cosmel uh, or or actually clashed Daytona which came one one I think it was one or two weeks after uh Cosmel and then we went straight back into the lab again and, and the result we found was quite shocking uh when it came to to view to max uh, of course on the one side you can say well that that's that's just how it's going to be because the, the amount of time you can prioritize on higher intensity is less so because because of that the view to max will naturally go down because you don't have the same stimulus uh, at high at high power or high speed so again saying that your five minute power or three four five minute power uh, and also this equivalent in, in terms of swimming maybe even a little bit shorter because some more muscles involved but let's say what you can do uh, you'll probably reach view to max quicker in swimming but then we you already might reach it after 100 meter 200 meters or so let's say one to two minutes uh, of swimming in running you also reach it slightly faster than what you do in 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 cycling again just because of the way uh, because of the modality but that kind of the ability to run fast on uh, Thousand meters, fifteen hundred meters. It is important, of course. Like for example, we saw Christian powering away from from uh, Alex Yi in in Tokyo uh, with with good good margin. But we have to remember that he still had been swimming fifteen hundred meters before that. He has been biking forty kilometers and he's been running for eight and a half kilometer before he does that so if all the gear all the training had been geared towards just being able to run the fastest possible over a thousand meters or 1500 meters that would probably not even have been putting him in a position where he would have 
be, being able to do that. He needs to have a little bit higher, but still, uh, but or a little bit higher than maybe his peers. Um, but it is more that that race demand that dictates how you're going to balance your training and then the rest becomes a function of that so your high view to max yes if you're a 1500 meter runner if you are a short distance swimmer if you are a, a kayaker uh, a k1 like thousand meter uh, kayaking is what you're doing so you're racing for three and a half minutes uh, then um, extremely high view to max or high view to max is 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 maybe one of the best determinators of good performance but and also rowers uh, and this is why you often very often or very often find extremely high absolute view to max so raw raw view to max in uh, rowers kayakers and so on uh, but of course since they are doing a non-weight bearing sports they, they also have a more muscles they have more weight and all these kind of things too so for a triathlete we have to remember again if we say that there's if you've got a higher five minute power then typically we also see a high view to max there is a very strong correlation between the two then we can also say that well in a sport where a five minute power is not important then a high a high view to max will not be even important so Again, there in Ironman, you're even further away from needing to have a high uh, five-minute power. So again, a high view to max will not be uh, equally important. And probably also one of the things that is quite interesting about it is that we know that the heart is grossly inefficient. In in average population, I think that uh, some of the research that have been done there are showing that the mechanical efficiency of the heart is approximately 10%. And again, coming back to where I said there are two fundamental laws that I very often come back to, and one is the first law of thermodynamics, and the other one is the stationary action principle, or the law of least action, basically, where the nature always tries to figure out how can I do this specific task, but spending the least possible energy or the, the way of least resistance, then we can imagine that having a big heart, if you don't need it, is not very efficient because then the body needs to turn over more calories per time than what it really needs to do. And also more calories, more time means more heat, uh, which is <laughs> some heat you need, but a lot of heat excess is, 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 again, when we talked about heat training, is not ideal either. So because... If the body, we see that the biochemical efficiency of, of, of triathletes or elite triathletes, elite cyclists sits around 20%, 20-21%. That means, in fact, that then for the power that you are producing, mechanical power that you're producing to propel yourself forward, your bike forward, 80, 79 to 80% of the total amount of calories that you are turning, uh, turning around or per time only 20 to 21% of that goes to move you forward and 79 to 80% of that goes into heat production. And if you need now to produce more heat because you have a big heart, which also produces heat and it's bigger than is necessary, then that is not very efficient, especially when we know that the gross efficiency in, in, in the average population is 10%. For leads, it's probably more efficient. Uh, but again, uh, still, it is something that you really don't need because you don't need a high view to max as it does. You don't need a big heart. You just you, you basically need a big enough heart. That's what you really need to basically find that peak uh, performance. So 
VO2max uh, in, in Ironman, it's not, it, uh, it, it still is important because it is, again, the maximal, to, to put it another way, there is only, um, yeah, theoretically, you could say that you want the highest possible VO2max. You want the highest possible fraction utilization of oxygen. You want the highest possible, so meaning the highest possible uh, maximum active steady state. You want the highest possible fat max. Uh, and of course, we can always come back and discuss fat max. But you want, or, or to put it in more in physics terms, you want the highest possible average speed for seven and a half hour swimming, biking, and running combined. That means also that if you want the highest possible seven and a half hour uh, speed, that then then we know that your seven and a half hour speed that's never going to be higher than your one hour speed, and your one hour speed will never going to be higher than your than, than higher than your your five minute uh, power or speed. So it means, of course, that there that there needs to be a balance between these kind of things and. So, so that basically your seven, half, seven and a half hour speed doesn't be, are not being compromised by that you're having a too low or a limiting one hour speed or five hour speed, whatever speed. But there, there needs to be, of course, a, a, a healthy relationship between the short duration and the longer duration. But this is where, again, when you come to then balancing your training or, or, or your, your distribution of training needs then to be balanced so that you optimize, of course, for the, 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 the seven and a half hour uh, speed or power, um, uh, but only to the extent where that the, the shorter duration or medium, the shorter duration powers and speed that you have doesn't become a limiter for them. Not You don't need a big margin because that's not that's then not efficient. Like for example, having like a big hardness, but again, it cannot be too low either because that's gonna be a limit. So again, it comes down to how, how you distribute your training, how much train, time you got to the training, and, and then how you distribute your training to balance this uh, as perfectly as possible. If you love this episode or the podcast in general, well, it's only here because of the support I get from some of the legends who listen to the show and have chosen to support it on Patreon. Signing up for my Patreon costs either $2 or $5 per week, and that money goes towards putting the time it takes into getting guests recording episodes, and producing episodes. I put on average about 15 to 20 hours of work per week into the podcast. And so if you enjoy the show, want to be a part of the reason it can continue happening and are in a position to help the podcast become even better and, and bigger, then by signing up to Patreon, you are literally doing that. Once you sign up to Patreon, you get access to a weekly extra podcast I do called The Training Diaries, which is, is 90 minutes of triathlon training talk and heaps of laughs. It's sort of both a serious and lighthearted look at triathlon training in general. Your support also helps me get more big name guests on that you actually want to hear from and release additional weekly episodes instead of just the one every week because I can justify putting the time away from work and family and, and back into the podcast. So if you'd like to sign up and put your arm around me and, and the show, the link um, to click on to do so is in the description of this episode. And if you're one of the people who already does uh, support me on patreon then seriously thank you so much you're the reason everybody is listening today and if you aren't yet but you decide to then seriously thank you so with christian blumenfeld you know measuring um, a vo2 max of 93 uh, at his highest which like i've already said is crazy high as high as i've sort of heard of going into kona or the ironman world championships or the ironman 70.3 world championships or cosimo do you guys try and get his VO2 max to become a little bit lower? And if so, 
what would his VO2 max have been when he stood on the start line for Kona this year compared to at his highest at 93? So that's again uh, an excellent phrase question because that allows me to bring back the take take away, take away message then and that that is that that if you focus on reducing the VO2 max then you then then we are starting to obsess over physiology or physiological metrics and again VO2 max is just one 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 component in 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 a big big system where the body is compensating in many different ways for example you can have two athletes with the same VO2 max the same fraction utilization or you can basically say that they they seemingly they have a same metabolic profile but still the power output or speed of of one of the athletes is greater because he has a better biomechanical efficiency or better biochemical efficiency and and the body will always try to to, to adapt to, to to its demand for example one thing that people very often focus on is christian that he has very big lungs but now if he has big lungs if this is something we focus oh that's a fantastic thing that he has that's probably why it's good then we are focusing on a very isolated isolated parameter where again we see that Christian and Gustav are having the same VU to max. So how can it be then that Christian have this higher V doesn't have a high VU to max? We have these big lungs because when we talk about lungs, we talk about respiration, gas exchange, oxygen uptake, or getting in more air. But again, we see that he doesn't have a higher VU to max. Of course, whether if we peak them only for this, potentially we could get them there. But if you look at it from a demand perspective, we basically see that they come in around the same. Same view to Max. And that is, of course, because Gustav, maybe he compensates a little bit with a higher breathing frequency. So it gets in a little bit more oxygen. But in reality, that's not actually the case either. The case is that Gustav, because the body have needed to adapt to the demand that we have in training, he is actually having a higher, he's compensating with a higher fractional utilization, no, fraction, yeah, well, the extraction of oxygen the extraction of oxygen for the, the the lesser volume that he gets into his lungs are higher than it is for Christian. So again, if the goal was to reduce the view to max, we're obsessing over a single metric, which really is too far away from all the demands that goes into being, on a, being at your best, whether you are training 10 hours or 30 hours. Uh, and that means that we don't focus, uh, or what that means, or the takeaway here is that we don't focus on reducing the view to max. The reduction view to max becomes a result rather of the change in distribution and specificity of an arm and compared to the long, the, the shorter distance racing, like like uh, like Olympic distance, and even in Olympic distance, we see that. Having 93 milliliter per minute per kilogram uh, in oxygen uptake is actually not ideal. It's actually a little bit lower even there because again, uh, you're not going to do. It's not a five minute power, three minute power, or, or, or speed that you're doing. You're doing in average one hour 45 minutes of racing with some surges, uh, some surges and other things in there, but. For to be able to stay with that demand and bridge home the best time or to win that race, if you if you now only or you try to distribute your training closer and or more and more towards bringing up your view to max even higher, 
that would mean less specificity. And most likely, yes, you would probably be the guy that could go in a one breakaway early on in the race and you you made up a gap. But the, pro but the problem is the average speed of the rest of the pack there is higher than what you are capable of sustaining. And because of that, they, they're going to eventually catch up with you and then and then 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 they win. So again, it's it's about finding this healthy balance. And then again, using view to max view to max is actually not a very interesting. It's it's one parameter is and and I measure that, but not for the reason of view to max itself, but more to have a bigger picture of the balance between the energy systems, efficiencies, and all these kind of things. So, so view to max again is only also when actually you see a lot of the testing that I do with Christian and Gustav, where they're wearing the mask. So the view to master, or we're in the lab with uh, the metabolic cards, view to max. I can even sometimes, if I know that we have something more important come up next day, I can even say just skip the view to max because the profile was more important or other metrics there. So view to max again is it's just one single parameter, um, and of course now things probably a lot of people will start scratching their head and thinking oh this goes against everything we have learned before and so but and it sounds like very complicated no it's not you really don't need to know the view to max more important is that everything you can do that just by if you have a power meter or even you could do it only with a gps with a gps itself and you would just look at the relationship between the shorter medium and longer duration and you're trying again to find that balance that that uh, that allows you to uh, execute uh, uh, the best strategy in a race to set you up for a win, more or less. You could do that potentially only with a GPS. But of course, the more instruments you bring on board, the more you are able to understand how things come together and then start to maybe individualize on on one deeper level and and extract even a little bit more for those athletes but in reality you 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 actually just need a a speed uh, speed uh, time curve and 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 you would already be able to say a lot about an athlete and where you would need to prioritize the training just from that itself like i said at the start of this episode this chat with olav is brought to you by pillar performance I always say this, but Pillar didn't reach out to me. I actually reached out to them. I'd never tried a supplement I felt really did anything until I tried Pillar Performance's triple magnesium powder. I, I honestly bought it um, just to try some because I'd seen it on social media and I literally noticed a significant improvement in my sleep. And we all know as people training for any endurance sport, particularly triathlon and running and cycling and swimming, while, while trying to balance our day-to-day -day lives, if our sleep sucks, we suck. And my sleep really sucked. Um, so seeing an improvement in that has just been awesome for my life. Um, so if you want to see for yourself or try for yourself, then click the link in the description of the show or just head over to Pillar Performance's online shop and try some for yourself. They also have heaps of other micronutrient products that, that help you in lots of ways specific to where you might be needing a bit extra in your training and life. Um, and while you're there, uh, at checkout, use the code HTT10 when you do go there and, and it'll get you $10 off your order. Um, and you can use that co code multiple times too. So literally just go nuts with it. Um, get you $10 off your order and and it helps support the show, which um, Pillar have, have, have uh, graciously agreed to, to jump on and support when I did reach out to them. So yeah, helps me, helps you, helps everyone. Mm -hmm. 